are listening to Win Win, a podcast brought to you by the global nonprofit organization Win Women and in Innovation. Each episode features inspiring innovators from the startup world, innovation consultancies, and Fortune 500 companies who share their innovation secrets and career trajectories every Monday. As for me, I'm your host, Zoya Kozakov, global product lead at Win by Night and product manager by day. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Win-Win Podcast. I would be remiss to not start this podcast by thanking so many of you that have reached out to me last week when I was named to Forbes 30 Under 30, which I am still so grateful for. But I just wanted to say that I truly would not be honored in this way without the thousands of incredible listeners who tune in week over week. And of course, the amazing women who have come onto this podcast in the last three years to share their stories. I'm also thrilled to connect with all of the new listeners that are here. So all around, just lots of gratitude and excitement in the air for me. As we are in December officially, I thought it was the perfect time to share the amazing woman behind Pattern Brands, Suze Dowling, who is the co-founder and chief business officer over there. Pattern is a family of home good brands like Open Spaces and Paquetto, which you may have seen on Instagram. And they do a combination of acquisitions and in-house incubations to build the companies and products, which is really fascinating and we dive deeper into. And Suze herself is such an incredible person. She comes from a very small town in Australia and was the first person in her family to go to university and is now just crushing it. So I'm not only just impressed with how she's built pattern brands, but now specifically how knowledgeable she is in her space. So without further ado, please check out this conversation with Susan. Definitely make sure to check out Pattern Brands for all of your gifting this holiday season and of course for your own home good needs. Hi Susan, welcome to the Win Win Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Thank you so much for joining me. So for those who don't know, you are the co-founder and chief business officer at Pattern, a family of direct-to-consumer home brands, which are all about finding enjoyment in the everyday starting with a home, a mission that I personally really connect with. Our listeners may know some of those brands, such as Open Spaces, Letterfolk, or Yield. So before we dive in, the question I like to kick off with is, what does being a chief business officer and co-founder mean practically? So what do you do day to day? Honestly, so many things, and that's what I really love about it. But for me, it's ultimately about making sure that my team are really clear on our goals and that everyone has what they need in order to do their job really well. So I'm you know, spending the day working with my supply chain team on our NPI or new product innovation for next year and the, the following at the moment, or with merchandising, thinking about how we're creating really compelling upsells you know, for our consumer um, and we, we actually have got more of a focus on omni-channel as well these mm. days. So spending time with our Amazon or our wholesale teams on what's happening there. I sometimes am in the buyer meetings themselves, which is really enjoyable. Or, you know, right before this, I was just chatting with my head of ops and CX on a integration that we're in the middle of uh, for a new brand that recently joined the family. So the day varies, um, but it's really a lot of problem solving and, and trying to bring clarity uh, amidst, amidst the you know, chaos that sometimes an early stage startup can be. 
Totally. And I think one of the unique challenges you have on your hands, which I'm sure we'll talk about a little bit more, is how you think about your company as a family of brands, as well as letting the individual brands uh, have their spotlight. But let's backtrack a little bit. Your career most recently was on the agency side with Gin Lane, a New York-based independent agency that focused on launching challenger startups to market. You helped launch brands like Harry's, Hims and Hers, and others. And so when you think about it, what advantage do you see now being on the brand building side? And what do you wish you had more of from the agency side of things? You know, what was really interesting is, you know, I I did build my career in the agency landscape. And I think what it made me realize is, you know, how to really communicate with a customer, how to really build a brand and and create a compelling foundation and build something that could be dynamic and flex based on the situation. Because I spent so many years, you know, doing that, being able to put kind of my hat on in many different, you know, situations, Mm -hmm. depending on the brand that we were working with. I think what I wish I'd known more about coming into an operating business is really the physical product and supply chain side of things. You know, we launched Pattern in late 2019 and, you know, our brand Open Spaces, which is a brand we actually incubated versus acquired, uh, launched in late January of 2020. And so you can imagine what a roller coaster of a learning experience that was launching a brand right before COVID hit, right. especially a brand that was in home organization. And so it was really kind of diving both feet in to learning about, you know, inventory management, the creation of products, how we think about raw materials, how we think about inbound logistics. Those are things that, to be quite honest, I I feel like I was very naive, you know, coming over in the operating side and didn't, I think I realized on paper, oh yeah, of course those things are included and involved. I don't think I realized, you know, really truly what was involved, you know, in them. And it's only become more complex the more brands we've added and the more we've scaled and diversified our channels. But I love to learn. So for me, it's actually a very motivating thing. The fact that, you know, each day I go, wow, I I knew nothing the day prior. And, and, you know, look how much smarter I am now about how we're operating our business. I like the fact that there's always a new challenge. Absolutely. I imagine, though, there are women that are sitting there and thinking, yeah, but like I, I couldn't do that. I couldn't switch. And here you are as an example of the fact that you can. So once you got there and saw how maybe grave that uh, learning curve was, what do you think are things that maybe tactically and or philosophically have helped you overcome it day to day? Honestly, I think a big one is never being afraid to ask questions. For me, I I really believe that there is no such thing as a bad question. And so I try to live by that mantra myself. And I've really gone out and actively put myself in situations that, you know, I'm naturally a really introverted person. And so I've had to put myself out there and find mentors that I could ask questions of in areas that I knew were perhaps some of my weaker spots. And, you know, that that's really shortened my learning curve. But I also think a big part of it is you can be your own most limiting person sometimes. And so, you know, I, I know I've absolutely struggled with self-limiting beliefs of, do I deserve to have this seat at the table of, Mm. you know, running this business, especially coming from an agency to an operating business And I think I've really had to learn 
and tell myself, no, like you can do this and no one else is going to do this but you. And so I think it's it's the combination of really making sure that I'm emotionally present and ready for, for that, but also then very pragmatically going and asking many, many questions all day, every day to really try and get as much information as I can. You know, I always think there's nothing I wouldn't do, you know, for the benefit of pattern. And part of that is really making sure that I'm continuing to learn and grow. I love that. And even as an expert, I think you always have to be asking those questions because the the day that you think you're an expert, I think, is the day you fundamentally stop growing and innovating. So definitely resonate with that. A thousand percent. You know, we always say within the team, we look for people that have a sense of curiosity because I think people that are curious are always asking questions. They're inherently more collaborative and therefore learning from one another and I think they they also love to learn. Like there is something about that process of just really loving finding and having that like aha moment of something unlocking. And so that's where I try and surround myself with the team, you know, filled with these people that only continue to push me to be better. And on that note, I, I don't think I explicitly asked you this, but you know, you did come from this amazing agency background and then you did decide to make your life probably a hundred thousand times harder by <laughs> jumping onto the brand side. Why did you decide to do that? You know, it was something where we really thought very long and hard about this because I say we, I have two co-founders. We've all worked together now for over a decade and that we ran the agency business together. And, you know, it took us a long time to make the agency business really successful. It was a lot of hard work, a lot of sacrifice. Um, and we'd finally got it to the stage where it, it was, you know, really humming along nicely. And then we thought, oh, well, what do we really want to spend the next decade of our lives mm. doing, though? And, and I think working so closely with the entrepreneurs to help launch them to market was very rewarding but we really wanted to be those entrepreneurs ourselves. Mm-hmm. It was almost like we were creating and, and putting these babies out in the world, but we wanted to help you know nurture them and grow with them. Um, and that really led us to saying, should we take this leap of faith? And we decided that if we were going to take the leap of faith, it had to be for an opportunity that we really wholeheartedly believed in. And for us, that really was pattern because it was saying, okay, what about if we took the way that D2C brands have been operating, kind of turn them on its head a little bit because we'd really been and had this firsthand experience of seeing this D2C bubbles that was happening in like the 2010s to 2015s, which is where people were really chasing this top line growth. It was also then coupled with a lack of strong gross margins and it just wasn't sustainable. And we knew that it wouldn't kind of net long-term returns. And so we wanted to basically reinvent the Holdco model grounded in D2C thinking. So basically saying, what about if we had a one team, one cap table model, but we had multiple brands, you know, being operated by that team, almost, almost like having an internal agency, if you will. And in doing so, we could provide brands that hadn't yet scaled access to resources they may not have otherwise, and really kind of help each to reach their natural inflection point in the most profitable manner. And I think that I would also say that that makes extra sense considering that all of the brands do serve the different purposes within the home, whether that's organizing or creating or decorating or or whatever else. So that makes a ton of sense to me. You touched on it, but there were these D2C consumer brand glory days. As a millennial, I'll just 
out myself and say like I have a Casper mattress. I've used <laughs> like you know all of the things. Pros hair care. I've a Quip toothbrush. Like I've done it all. And so Quip was one of ours. So love them. Big yeah, fan. exactly. And like I I love those things as a consumer. But now in the in the last couple of years, I've dabbled in the venture space, and so many times I get so excited about a brand, and then I'm told, well, you know, um, for those who don't know, with a consumer direct to consumer brand, a lot of the times there's this initially very sexy margin because you think that whatever the margin is, you know, the company is ultimately getting that money. But then when you go to an Amazon or a Sephora or whatever else, that margin is cut. And therefore, a lot of folks in the venture space say, well, why would we invest in that category when we would invest in a software as a service? So how are you thinking about it? What do you have to say to all of those people? Look, I think this is where it goes back to the fundamentals. You have to have incredibly strong gross margins. And I think for a period there, brands were basically creating you know, product lines that didn't have strong gross margins and also that weren't first purchase profitable. Because I think even taking Omni aside, on the D2C side of things, it's incredibly important that you're looking at your fully loaded costs and also taking it down to your contribution margin too, i.e. inclusive of marketing costs. Mm-hmm. And a lot of brands would say, well, I'll reap this with my LTV. I'll eventually become profitable. Mm-hmm. But the problem is that isn't a given and certainly not in this current environment. So it is crucial that you're like first purchase profitable on every single purchase. And, you know, in how we manage our business, we really look at every single, you know, D to C lever and understand exactly the ROI on our paid social versus our paid search versus our affiliate, et cetera so that we are really managing each to the best of the ROI for that platform. And we're not getting ourselves kind of too excited in one area and not seeing kind of the holistic picture. From an omni-channel perspective, absolutely. You know, as we've gone more omni, we've been so thankful that we've had the strong gross margins that we have had because it's allowed us to, to do omni in a very profitable manner, especially when you think about, you know, traditional wholesale buys and the markup that they expect, you know, which is usually 50 to 60%, depending on the category, sometimes more. Super interesting. And as you think about building out the family of brands, you mentioned the kind of build versus buy uh, model that you have. So whether you're incubating a brand or acquiring a brand. So talk me through how you're thinking about it currently. And as your company grows, how you're thinking about it. You know, we actually began incubating brands. And I think that felt to us originally like the most natural fit given our background as brand builders. I think one of the key kind of leaps of faith we've made in this has really been you know, changing and evolving that model from being incubating to acquiring. But it's actually been the biggest risk that's paid off in many respects. That all really became came about because in it was mid-2020, it was like the darkest days of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And we were talking about how do we expand the brand family? And we really, you know, had actually started planning the next brand that we were incubating. We had the business model, we've begun the industrial design. We were just trying to like make things happen, knowing that we also had travel restrictions. And we started to say, okay, let's just pause for a moment. And is this actually the smartest thing that we're doing? Because The R&D and kind of just initial investment involved in incubating a brand is very significant. The time it takes is very significant. And you then don't yet know if you're going to have product market fit. Kind of parallel to that, the Amazon aggregators were really aggressively going after FBA roll-up plays. 
And so we kind of were like, oh, wow, that's really smart. But wouldn't it be actually even smarter if we did that on Shopify? And, and couldn't we be the ones to do that? And so for us, it was really, instead of spending countless hours and dollars incubating, we can actually go out and find incredible businesses that have really strong product market fit. We know like their customer base. We know that the product has like a consumer like love and loyalty there. We know the gross margins and we can welcome them into the pattern family. And so we began doing that. I think, you know, it really has now been something where we've completed six acquisitions um, wow. and going forward, you know, we, we do intend to continue to expand the brand family through acquisition. Um, we think that it just makes a lot of sense. And, and to be quite honest, it's also incredibly rewarding to be able to give entrepreneurs the exits that we feel that they deserve, that they wouldn't have access to otherwise at this scale of business. You are also yourself a founder. And so lots of women especially, but I think humans as a whole probably struggle with risk aversion. And then we obviously know about the big pay gap that exists, but there's also, I would argue, an even bigger gap in wealth building, and that oftentimes includes equity. So tell me about how you thought about your own equity and these companies that you co-founded. And then as you now are sitting on the other side, acquiring brands and also working on their exit. So I think for, for the brands that we worked with in the agency business, you know, we were would take a very teeny, 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 tiny percentage of equity in addition to the cash fee that, you know, we had as an agency. I'm really glad and so thankful that we did that because it also exposed me very early on in my career to the value that equity can play. Interestingly enough, we actually didn't have our first exit of, of one of those businesses until after we'd already co-founded Pattern. Mm-hmm. Um, it all happened within a month of each other, which I thought was was funny timing. I think with Pattern itself, it's something where I am very aware of the equity you know, value, but I also try and be very realistic about this because I think people can get too excited too early of saying, oh, well, my business valuation is X. I always say you want to go after the most realistic business valuation because, again, I think for a long time their businesses were valued in a really inflated manner Mm -hmm. that were more equivalent to like the SaaS business valuations. And I don't, I think that actually did the business a disservice in terms of the expectations that were placed on it by like the, the investors themselves. So we've been really careful with pattern to, I think, be very pragmatic in our approach. In terms of, you know, the businesses that we acquire, we are acquiring profitable brands. And that actually makes it easier in some ways to put a valuation on that. Because you look at their trailing 12-month EBITDA and you say, okay, well, here's the multiple that this trailing 12-month EBITDA is typically going for, which is usually in the realm of three to five times EBITDA, would then earn out potential, you know, at the subsequent 12 and 24-month mark. We do what's called an asset-based purchase. So basically, it's where we're buying the entirety of the asset and we're integrating it into you know, our company, which is very freeing for those founders because it allows them to, to then actually pursue their next entrepreneurial venture. And it's actually really fun. A number of the founders decided to go more into the logistics and operations side, creating their own 3PLs. So we actually have a few of the founders that we still work with to this day with their 3PL businesses servicing uh, our portfolio, which is um, a nice full circle moment. For sure. And what about you as personally, like finding your 
footing as somebody who's on the C-suite, who's a co-founder? How have you thought about that all for yourself? You know, I think I wish in some ways that I'd been you know, more thoughtful about it because in some ways I have always been, I just want to do what's for the best of the business and for the best of my team. Um, I think hindsight is twenty twenty, where I go back and I go, oh, I may have thought about that a little differently or mm, negotiated mm-hmm. that a little bit differently throughout the course of my career. Um, I think the other thing that has been interesting is obviously being, you know, a female and quite a male dominated world. Um, I think that has been something where over time I've realized that I'm going to be the one that has to speak up and voice, you know, what my needs are. And there's nothing wrong with saying, here's what I need Mm -hmm. and here's why, and here's the value that I bring to the table. I, I will say I'm hopefully excited to one day realize, you know, the equity value, but I also am equally as motivated, honestly, by the process and learning experience of building, because what I feel like I'm getting to do is such invaluable experience that I just, I'm a girl from a very small town in South Australia originally. And the fact that I get to come to New York and build a business of my own still kind of leaves me a little bit shell-shocked and feeling just so thankful that even that opportunity has been kind of carved out for me. I so appreciate that as a girl from a small country called Israel. (laughs) But I also think it speaks to the fact that, of course, the fact that you are, the work that you're doing is breaking boundaries, your future forward thinking is breaking boundaries, but fundamentally you're breaking boundaries, in my opinion, the most pragmatic way you you can be, which is by being out there, building the company and, and living in that present moment as well. No. And I mean, it's very important for me to like share those learnings. Like that's something that I always say, there's enough room for every single founder at the table. Mm -hmm. So like, let's help each other because there's no reason not to, especially, you know, when it comes to female entrepreneurship, that's something that I'm just very, very passionate about because I know without supportive mentors along the way, I would not be where I am today. And so I always want to kind of pass along any insights and knowledge that I can, you know, as we go through this. On that note, we are just as professionals in the working space, and I'm sure you as somebody who is a co-founder of a a family of brands, there's so much different technologies and shiny objects that are thrown, like try this new app, try this new whatever. (laughs) Yep. So how do do you distill technology that you're excited about and business opportunities or innovation that you're excited about, especially because you're at a smaller company? It's, it's interesting in that we always say, don't get distracted by the shiny new toy. And it's hard to sometimes not be distracted, especially when you're hearing from many people all around you. Oh my gosh, this works so well for me. Or have you heard of this? Or, you know, X, Y, Z. I think for me, it's also just being very clear and looking at everything through the lens of like, what do we need? And how is this going to help get me there? And I think always taking a bit of a haircut on what something is promising, because the reality is every single service platform partner will promise the world, um, but nothing is actually going to solve everything in your business. And so I think sometimes you need to look at just like the time that something is taking to even diligence that, you know, product or platform and say, is this worth my time right now? Or is this distracting me from my current goals? 
you know, we were actually just talking in a company meeting this morning. We're prepping for Q4, you know, holiday season. And we're saying that's our Olympics and mm. how we win is by staying laser focused as a team because like a winning team is really clear on their goals. And I think that applies here. Be really clear on your goals and then measure this. Is this going to help or hinder getting towards my end goal? If you're not asking yourself what problem this is solving, or if you don't know what problem some shiny thing is solving, it probably is actually a distraction. (laughs) And it's like not to knock on AI, because obviously a huge opportunity for all of the people and all of the things. But you know, when I on the VC side of things, when I see a company that says something x AI, I don't care about the AI piece, I want to know like what problem is it solving? And how is it fundamentally making something better? I think it goes back to and I mean, for me, I'll say from a consumer product standpoint, we always talk about like the value of actually old school infomercials. Old school infomercials uh, were, you know, think about when you're, you know, in a marketing class and they're like, sell me this pen. When you're talking about it, right, you're talking about what's the problem this is solving. You're relating it to a real world scenario and again, contextualizing this for the consumer and you're creating something and taking it from a want to a need. And I think this is something that, again, applies definitely in the world of consumer products of does this, you know, actually need to exist in the world and what problem are we solving we always say for our products we really want to marry form and function so we don't want something that just looks pretty we want it to be highly highly functional but i think it goes back to again SaaS um, platforms as well right it's like is this something that is just going to be a shiny distraction or is this something that's going to meaningfully impact either my efficiency my output or my analysis could not agree more with that. Um, so before we kick it off to the last question, just two or three rapid fire questions for you. Okay, come at me. So what's a product that you're loving these days? My obsession, as many people will tell you, is the Spoonula from our brand gear. It's a combination of a spatula and spoon in one. And I've now become known within the team as Spoonula Sue's because of how obscenely obsessed I am with this item. It's just the most functional item I've ever had. And my scrambled eggs have never been better than when using my Spoonula. Well, as somebody who sucks at cooking, I'll take you up on that (laughs) one. What's a resource or book that you find yourself coming back to? This could also be a podcast. This is going to sound like a silly one, but just LinkedIn as a whole. Mm. Some of the biggest breakthroughs, and I will say my entire career has been built based on stalking people on LinkedIn. I came from like it's, and so I think it goes back to not being afraid to put yourself out there and network and build genuine relationships but I love LinkedIn. It's how I've cold reached out to so many people. And that goes like literally to how I ended up meeting one of my co-founders, uh, you know, to some of the buyers for our wholesale partners and everything in between. Um, I'm also obsessed with LinkedIn recruiter. And I love to just also read what people are posting about. So I'd say maybe it sounds like an obvious one, but one that I'm pretty passionate about. No, I, I'm with you on this one. What's a way that you let off steam? I have a really hard time relaxing because I feel like even in my sleep, I'm dreaming about pattern and (laughs) it's always good, exciting things. I'm always like, oh my gosh, this is an idea. And I'll get up in the middle of the night and write myself an email. But I did have to learn how to kind of just force myself to take my phone out of my hand for a second. And so I started doing acupuncture and coughing Mm. probably about a year and a half, two years ago. 
And it has been hands down the best thing I've ever done for myself. I try and go once every week to two weeks. It's 45 minutes where I have nothing but just being present and kind of just peaceful and like silent and with myself, which is such a rare thing for us to be able to do. And I find actually being able to come out of those sessions, I just feel like so rejuvenated both physically, but also mentally. Love it. And before we ask the big innovation question, what's your beverage of choice? Oh, English breakfast tea with copious amounts of skim milk. So I like Everyone makes Yum. fun of me because I like a very, very milky, milky tea. Like no, it's, I'm the same. It's so milky, but I love it. I'm like almost ready to denounce my love for coffee. I'm all tea and matcha actually, these days. So I love the smell of coffee, same. and I've never drank coffee though. So I've never wow. been a coffee person. It's always been a tea person, but I probably drink between. 12 to 15 cups of tea a day. Oh it's my like God. You never not see me with a tea in my hand. So I'm very highly caffeinated. It's just drip feeding the caffeine. Got it. Got it. Well, I love it. So before we do let you go, I'd love to know where do you see yourself and your industry one month from now, one year from now, and 10 years from now? Oh gosh. I think one month is an easy one because it's holiday season. Mm-hmm. So it's the busiest time of the year and we'll just be trying to keep our head above water and kind of going and doing daily meetings of, you know, how is peak going? Um, So I think for everyone in the industry, that is where we're all going to be a month from now. I think one year from now, you know, for us, I think we'll be a bigger brand family. Hopefully we're continuing to really deliver on that promise of helping people enjoy daily life at home. I'm excited to see, you know, what categories we're in I think a year from now, industry-wide, we're going to still see that D2C brands are continuing to expand Omni. I really think that is, you know, a trend that is going to continue alongside, of course, like thinking about how we just continue to build the most profitability and kind of basic fundamentals in D2C. 10 years from now, you know, honestly, I don't know. And that's kind of what I love about it. You know, I moved to the U.S., just over a decade ago, it's been nearly 11 years. And I think if you'd asked me then, I could never in my wildest dreams have predicted Mm -hmm. like where or what I'd be doing. And I think I'm such a believer that you should just kind of be open to the opportunities as they present themselves. What I will say is I have very big dreams for pattern and for myself. So I'm super excited to see what the future holds. I think on the D2C side and for brands and just brand building in general, it's been such a transformational journey in the past decade for D2C. And I don't think that's going to stop anytime soon. I think we're going to see continued digital innovation. I think we'll see kind of that strong emphasis that will continue on sustainability and ethical practices. I think we'll see like diversification of offerings and just really a continued focus on customer centric strategies So I do think the landscape is going to evolve as those consumer preferences and like the technology behind it advance. Think about this, like 10 years ago, Shopify was in its infancy. That's Mm -hmm. wild to me. But I think ultimately, as long as we all remain customer first, or as I would like to say, direct with consumer first, you know, I think we're all going to be poised for success. Yes, lots of room for innovation and more players. And of course, the success of the pattern brand family. Thank you so, so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Win Win, brought to you by Win, Women in Innovation, and myself, 
Zoya Kozakov. If you enjoy this podcast, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit womeninnovation.co to learn more about our organization, programming, and other opportunities. And remember, when women innovate, we all win.